It's time for the Basser Hour. The Basser Hour is an in-depth look at things affecting today's veteran. The Basser Hour is sponsored by www.hadit.com. If you need help with the VA, log on to hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Jay Basser. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Basser Hour. It is beautiful, rainy November 21st, 2019. The Thanksgiving is just around the corner next week. Hope everybody's got their turkeys ready to pop in the oven and ready to eat till they pass out. Um, today, we've got Dr. Bash, Bill Krieger. We're going to discuss uh, the higher level review process. And uh, I can't forget my co-host, Mr. Jerome Cook. How you doing, Jerome? Well, doing all right. Still here. So, that's a good one. We didn't, on the last few shows, we've been touching on the review processes, and I've not through that process, but uh, we're fortunate enough to have Dr. Bash and Bill and I, these two guys, and especially Bill, the foremost experts on this appeal process. So, yeah. But I want to turn this over to Dr. Bash. Dr. Bash. How's the, how do you, how's the new uh, uh, appeal process affecting you? <laughs> well, you know, I write these 100-page 100, 100 reports, and I get a one-sentence reply back to the VA that it's denied, you know? So, um, so yeah. So, so what I do now is I'm starting to think that, you know, we do this ratcheting effect where you do supplemental claim with new evidence and then do a higher-level review on the law. Bill can tell us about it. And then I do another supplemental claim with new evidence and another higher level review. So last week I had one where I did the supplemental claim and then the patient asked for a hearing. I think Bill calls those predetermination hearings. So I went to the hearing with the patient virtually on the telephone just like this. And the, uh, the DRO guy goes, I've never talked to a doctor before that wrote a letter. <laughs> and so uh, he listened and then Gee. he uh, <laughs> had a new novel. And then he listened and asked some questions. And then um, about a week later, we had a positive decision. So I think those hearings are useful. Maybe Bill can give us a little insight into how those work because he's run several of those probably over the years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Engaged with that quite a bit. And um, um, offline, I found myself able to effectuate a grant. Um, on the basis of a pre-hearing discussion, you know, before even conducting the hearing, meeting with the decision review officer, explaining the case, the evidence, what have you. Occasionally, he just looks and says, "Oh yeah, I can grant that." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, these, so these these higher level review hearings are kind of like a pre pre-hearing decision, right? No. No, that the um, the predetermination hearing, and, and you and I were discussing a case earlier. A predetermination hearing is useful in some cases, um, especially I used to use those when I was a representative to get our cards on the table for in a decision that is involving a line of duty determination versus misconduct. You see, if, if you incur an injury in the service, uh, it's presumed to be service-connected, okay? But if it's a result of an act of misconduct, then 
service connection will be denied. Um, most often in that circumstance, we're talking about driving under the influence or, you know, DUI, those sorts of things. Hey, Bill, that, um, that predetermination but, hearing... Hey, Bill, that predetermination yeah, but, hearing only applies only applies to line of duty, or is it applied throughout the whole system? No, no, no. It, it can... you. A, a veteran is entitled to a hearing on any subject whenever they want. I mean, you know, I had a little caveat on that, but for the most part, that, that's rule of law. So this, so this um, hearing for the higher, higher level review operates the same way as what you're describing, probably. It's similar. And and the, um, the actual form that you submit when you file your appeal, now this, the situation is different. For a predetermination hearing, VA has made no decision whatsoever. But you want to get okay. your evidence in front of VA before they make the decision so you can explain yourself in a hearing and make it clear. And, and in some cases, that can give you an edge. Then VA goes ahead and completes the development of the evidence necessary to decide the case and then make the decision. The advantage with the predetermination mm -hmm. hearing is You've got the issues clear. You're not dealing with inter, inter lower level employees um, and their interpretation of what you're asking for. By having a predetermination yeah. hearing, you have an actual transcript of the hearing and you can have a discussion with the decision review officer to establish clearly what you're claiming. That's a big edge. The second big edge is you give them positive evidence to, to begin with, so the momentum is already on your side. And in some cases, if that evidence is good enough, the VA can go ahead and grant the claim without further development. Perhaps they don't need another exam for some purposes because you've brought DBQs with you. Um, yep. That's so the that's advantage of, of a predetermination hearing. Now, that happens when you have made a claim, but you have not got a decision from VA. Now, what we're talking about higher-level review, VA has denied your claim, and now you want to appeal your claim, okay? Now, so what's going to happen is that if you go higher-level review, the rules now make it clear that the review will be conducted on the evidence of record. Not having an opportunity yep. to present yep. some evidence. That's, that's exactly, but what happens that's exactly is right. by, by seeking higher level review and by seeking the hearing, okay, and there's a box on there for a phone call, okay, that gets you to the DRO, the decision review office, and then you go ahead and put your evidence in anyway. Well, that kicks you out of higher level review, but the decision review officer wants to take his credit for working the case, so he can grant the case. <laughs> and yep. so that's another edge on our side that can help uh, with the process. And what happens is when, you, when VA receives new evidence, it kicks you out of a higher level review and into the supplemental claim. And when the decision review officer makes his decision, he'll record it as a supplement because we changed it. Does that make sense to anybody? Yep, <laughs> yep, yep. This one, okay. back, yep, back to this example. He goes, you know, he, he described this. He, he read the whole case, was very, I was very impressed with that. 
And he said, we're not going to add new evidence here, right? I said, that's right. And he was just asking us some questions about the presumption of soundness and the idea whether this guy had an aggravation or not. And I wrote my letter. There was no aggravation. It was all due to in-service. And so that was the thing that he was kind of hung up on a little bit. And then he said, okay, that makes sense. And I can use your letter. And then he re- reinforced like three or four times that if he couldn't make a positive decision, please appeal us to the next level. So he was kind of telling us that he might be under some constraints in a way. But uh, I was impressed with his with his knowledge of the case, and uh, we didn't want it. We didn't want to add new evidence because if we do, then like Bill says, it could be kicked out into the supplemental claim. And you have to be careful because I've read there's only they only allow like two supplemental claims, so you could actually use one of your supplemental claims sort of you know, by mistake in, in that situation. Right, Bill? Right. Right. Yeah. So, so my my idea is to put something on a claim, ratchet into high-level review for the law review, and then do another something on a claim for, for um, new evidence, and then ratchet that into a law review. So it's basically now four or five letters in my process that's going to try and help the veteran through the maze and in a way polish it for the BVA, which would be the next level above that. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a different process. Hey, Bill, you want to, this idea about new evidence, can you, you want to explain that a little bit to us? Because um, sometimes people struggle with new evidence. We were talking the other day about how we could use um, new lay letters or like sort of an like I might do focus questions. Please tell me more about this specific instance and how how the DRO or the rater look at that. Right, right. The the this you know if if you um, if you look at the manual, M twenty one tells employees what to do, and part one of the manual discusses appeal. Now, when you get to the decision review office, and one five C three is the section that discusses the duties and the jurisdiction of the decision review office. Now, the decision review officer has jurisdiction over what they now call legacy appeals. Okay, that would be appeals that were underway before February 19th, 2019. Okay, those are called legacy appeals. Now, a decision review officer has jurisdiction over those appellate jurisdictions. And the instructions are that once the decision review officer assumes jurisdiction on a case, he or she works in partnership with the appellant and representative to resolve all issues covered by the notice of disagreement. See? So they've actually put in the manual that the duties of the decision review officer are to work in partnership with the appellant and the representative to resolve the issue. And that's significant. Um, How's that different? How's that different, Bill? Well, it, it wasn't specified historically. Um, much of my time when I was doing some training for VA at the appeals office, um, much of my time I used to invest in trying
trying to help the staff understand that the regulation itself, 3.103, makes clear that you are to grant every benefit provided by law. That That's why you're here. You're not here to decide yes, no, maybe. You're here to grant everything the law provides. And then you have evidence that supports it or doesn't, okay? And you have to also look after the interests of the government. Now, that phrase, interest of the government, was so misunderstood by so many people. They used to think it meant protect the taxpayer, you know, protect the budget. You know, that, that phrase was put in there for the purpose of fraud, okay, fraud and abuse. You know, that, that, that's what looking out or protecting the interest of government was intended to mean, not protecting the taxpayer and the federal budget. <laughs> Uh, Bill? Um, yeah, yeah, Jerry. Uh, you know, I was reading through my claims folder, and I run across this section that says, Stop. Do not go past this page. And here, you know, over half my claims in there. And so, yeah, yeah. am I to take it that? Once they read to that point, which might be five to ten years after you submitted your claim, uh, and they stop. So all that data that they should be reading, they're, they're, you know, it's in a never-never land. I mean, it it has no effect <laughs> on your your appeal or claim, and uh, so what I done at one time, uh, I took and resubmitted all that under that page. <laughs> yeah, as, yeah. As, I've done as that new myself. <laughs> Because I've done that myself they in, in certain cases. In uh, yeah, now, and I understand right. why why that happened. I understand why it happened. It was temporary. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore. Okay, and and here's the origin of it. You remember years back when Congress was concerned about how long it takes for appeals to get done. Yeah, And part of the problem was that the Board of Veterans' Appeals was remanding cases back to the regional office and instructing them on what they needed to do. And a study was done. A third of the cases that go to the Board of Veterans' Appeals had to be remanded because the local employees did not obey the instructions in the relevant guidance, ordering them to develop the claim thoroughly before they decided. And so that's what was generating this high volume of remand. Yes. The Board of Veterans' Appeals decided on its own that rather than do remands, they were just going to start developing the evidence on their own at the Board of Veterans' Appeals. Okay? And there's some 
there turned out to be some legal problems with that that uh, ended in the termination of that process. And instead, what happened was all the staff that were working at the Board of Veterans Appeals on what the board called their development, the board developed uh, team, okay? That staff was transferred over to the Veterans Benefits Administration. And the office was called at that time the Appeals Management Center. And the plan was to remand all of the appeals to the Appeals Management Center instead of the regional offices so they'll be in one location and they can get good at it. Problem was they underestimated the volume of work and they understaffed the office and they got buried. And so people in the original management team there decided that, you know, on remand, we don't have to read anything that was put in the file prior to the BVA remand because that's already been considered. And so they put these clips in there and said, don't read anything beneath this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every, everything up to this point was already considered by the Board of Veterans Appeals. We only have to look at what comes in new after the remand and make our decision. That way we don't have to review the whole record. We can get them out of here quicker. Well, and that didn't work. That, that didn't work, and it didn't last very long. You know, one of the frustrating things for me, here I am representing a case at the Board of Veterans Appeals, and a file comes back from the Appeals Management Center, and it says no. It's denied because, you know, evidence on remand doesn't establish entitlement. And I look and I say, they didn't read why it was remanded. It was remanded because when I, last time I had it, I put in additional evidence and asked for a remand to consider this evidence before you decide to claim. <laughs> they weren't doing it. <laughs> they were just, they were slipping in. We don't need to read anything under the BVA decision. <laughs> and nothing relevant has been added. So you lose. And shipping it back to the Board of Veterans Appeals. Well, they, <laughs> so, they sent me a deal. Well, eventually they gave up on that too. And uh, yeah. so nobody today, uh, nobody I'm aware of today, still thinks that uh, you can get away with only what we call top cheating. You, the the yeah, term used to be top cheating. Yeah. yeah. Only looking at the few top sheets of paper in the file. But uh, that's not practice anymore. It's not practical. Well, anyway, every individual who reviews the record is required to review the entire record. Yeah. Well, at the time, they sent me a deal that this was all duplications, duplicates. And I asked them how how in the world could they know that if they didn't go beyond that? Don't go (laughs) beyond that. <laughs> if you don't how look you know underneath, and how do you know it's a duplicate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so uh, was that pra- was that practice? Also, was that practice also called blue sheeting? Blue sheeting. No, no blue sheeting is a different that, process. And that, that comes from that comes from the that comes from the color of the paper that rating decisions were written on. Mm. That was blue paper. 
And so <laughs> blue sheeting means you go through the record and you just read the prior decisions and the prior decisions tell you what the evidence was and what the outcome was. So you don't have to actually look at the evidence, just look at the rating decision. That way you can go through it a lot faster to try to meet your quota. That's the way that's the way you get the C U E because they just keep propagating the same error over and over. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, yeah. That, and yeah. that's right. And they do. The same error. Yeah, Which is that medicine, uh, you know, it happens in medicine too. Like I teach my medical students to don't be afraid to change the prior diagnosis, or you know, if you think that something's not right, change it and move forward from that because that propagation can occur when people are trying to do things quick in a 15 minute visit, you know. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So speaking can, of speaking of 15 minute visits. Yeah. Speaking of 15 minute visits, I had a patient last week that went to a CMP exam with a nurse practitioner. I think it was inside the VA hospital system. And I had written a letter, you know, one of my nexus letters before that, and the patient took it with him to the exam. And the lady said, No, I can't look at this. And I've been instructed not to look at any outside examinations because they confuse the issue. (laughs) 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 Mm hmm. That's so that, um, what I do in that case. Now that that uh, might have been that practitioner's misinterpretation, okay? <laughs> <laughs> or the person uh, that told them that might have misinterpreted. Um, that's one, one, of that's problems, one data point. One of the problems is that um, when we're seeking, when the VA is seeking a medical opinion. It must be clear that that opinion has considered the prior record, okay, and and all of the potentially relevant evidence. Now, if someone walks into the exam with evidence, that evidence hasn't been considered. It's not in evidence because it's being presented to the doctor instead of the regional Oh, Bill, so this, case, the is already, of record. This, this, this case, the evidence right, is already right. in the next product. Yeah. Right, right. I'm, I'm not disputing that at all. I'm just saying right. that this, this is how it happens for yeah, yeah. Uh, many cases where this has arisen, where you bring in yeah. evidence that you want the doctor to consider. But the doctor is required to consider evidence of record, not new evidence that you're bringing in for the first time. And that's, that's how that gets confusing content. Now, some do it. Some accept it. Some don't. I mean, like VHA is, what can I call them, a little more um, flexible, but at the same time, a little more inconsistent about procedures. Okay. I mean, like, um, you know, did you ever go to a VA doctor and ask the VA doctor to uh, write you a letter to help you with your VA claim? Oh, I sure have. <laughs> have oh, much success with that. <laughs> they don't. They don't do it, do they? No. They, no, we don't know about that stuff. You know, you got to. You know, you got. They give exams. They they have their own people to do that. Um, well, it's actually back. That dates back to 1998. Um, fellow I knew. It, it, high-level official of the Veterans Health Administration issued this bulletin for us to help us out. And basically the 
it, up to that point, it was all up to the local director of the hospital, and each hospital had its own policy. When he issued that bulletin, that bulletin advised everybody in the system that you know, your patient, if they want you to complete forms or provide records or express an opinion, um, they're your patient, you're free to do it. Just make certain you inform them that you're not making any decision, that the regional office is making decisions, and this is just, you know, my opinion. And so, hey, Bill, the, that, that, yeah. that thing was signed by our famous Dr. Frances Murphy. She was high level. She signed that memorandum. Well, That's actually, the one I was thinking of in November of 98 was uh, Tony Wiardo. Um, I guess he might have been working for it at the time. Um, yeah, yeah. I think but she, anyhow, yeah. yeah, but anyhow, when uh, when that went out, we thought, okay, we're going to have a, a little better time now, and we, we made sure all of our service officers in the field got copies of it to <laughs> take to the hospital to make sure they understand. And, yeah. And it was still inconsistent. Well, I remember one hospital, we had two cases, and one doctor on the staff at the hospital wrote a letter in support of the veteran's claim, and another doctor in the same hospital sent him a letter and said, we're not permitted to do that. (laughs) You know, it's a big place. It's kind of hard to get everybody, uh, get all these cats herded in the same direction. Oh, mercy. Yeah, my, my doctor colleagues but, were always worried about, they weren't really sure that it was a real real order, you know. They were kind of afraid of the whiplash. But uh, it lasted about five years because that was, had an exp- expiration date on it, you know. They have those re- renewal, yeah. renewals. And the other hurdle, and, and we've talked about this before, was the use of private medical evidence. And there is still in corners of VA people who resist accepting private medical evidence, even though VA asked for this in 1994. It was a little while ago, you know? Um, It was VA that asked Congress to give them the authority to use private medical evidence. That very session of Congress in 1994, Congress enacted uh, Section 5125 in the statute, Title 38, giving them the authority. To use private evidence, and VA had testified to Congress if we could do that, we could we could attack the backlog because we wouldn't have to spend so much time uh, ordering exams and stuff, and and we could move things faster. So they gave them permission in 1994, and and it took two years, but they made a regulation in 1996. <laughs> but it, well, it's I was a tough sell. I was actually involved with that sale. legislation. I was actually involved with that legislation in the Veterans Committee. I'll be. <laughs> Thank you for that. And, and uh, <laughs> Mr. Bob Filner. Remember Bob Filner? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mr. Hands-on Bob Filner. He was a hands-on individual. <laughs> hey, Jay, Jay, tell us about that. How'd that go? What, you had some uh, expert witnesses or something? Uh, they had several folks come in. They had... Uh, they had uh, a lot of uh, VA undersecretaries. I didn't know the VA had so many undersecretaries. They got a bunch of them. Then they had uh, 
of course, the veterans organizations, you know, those guys, they love coming in and testifying. They wear little hats and, you know, the little bolts on top of their heads and stuff, and they testify. Uh, it, it, it's, it's basically, what I can really tell you the truth, it's a big dog and pony show. <laughs> it's a big dog and pony show. Uh, what gets me, though, is when they have an issue in the congressional committees and the hearings in that area. If somebody is against an against an item, you can tell who's against it, who's for it. And the ones that are against it will try to delay, delay, delay because they know there's only a two-year window that they can work with. So once that two years is up, the new Congress comes in, they start from scratch. Yeah. That's why it takes four and <laughs> eight years to get something done. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had to sit into a lot of those hearings. I have. I've watched those yeah. fellows uh, with the hat and um, yeah, listen to their testimony. Oh, we had the same situation. Oh. We got a we got a veterans coalition here, and uh, same situation. You know, Congress comes in, and we have a chat. And they, you know, all the veterans organizations come in, and they have their issues, and then the other groups come in. So you've got four different organizations. So I have four different issues. Nobody's on the same page, and that's the problem. If they would be on the same page, they'd get more done. Uh, Bill, you was going to tell us about this Coast Guard thing that uh, uh, you was going to inform us about. Can we get that on the air? (laughs) Yes, Dr. Bash found this. I didn't even know it existed. (laughs) <laughs> one, of my, one of my patients, one of my patients' files, Bill. Wow. Well, it was uh, December fourteenth, twenty seventeen, and uh, the Coast Guard issued this technical directive, and it says that um, people who serve aboard Coast Guard Coast Guard cutters constructed prior to 1991 are to have their medical records documented to demonstrate that they were exposed to asbestos and lead. Now, the the paragraph, the language suggested is that it says, and this is what they put in in the Coast Guard members' medical records. This Coast Guard member has a history of a permanent duty assignment on a Coast Guard cutter that was constructed prior to 1991. These vessels are known to contain asbestos-containing material and lead dust from lead-based paint and or lead ballast ingots. So, and they, one, and one, one of the things they say up here um, that they are doing this expressly to create medical documentation of these exposures as it may facilitate the processing of future Veterans Administration disability claims. Okay? Now, that was December 2017. Uh, so what I did was I, I looked through M21, 
That's the employee manual again to see, oh, okay, has VA done anything in response to this? And the answer is no. No. Um, so if there is a member of the Coast Guard who wants to claim that they have a disability related to asbestos exposure or exposure to lead, this letter provides crucial, very important evidence documenting that if that ship was constructed prior to 1991, they were exposed. <laughs> so one element of service connection can be established by this, and it can shave months and months and months off multiple, multiple requests to the Coast Guard to try to confirm exposure. Hey, Bill. I think this is a very important document, and we need to get it out there. Hey, Bill, can this be generalized, analogous to other Navy ships that were built at that time and painted with the same paint? No. Um, they, we don't know. or this, this doesn't discuss other branches other than saying, you know, this clarifies policy under the responsibilities and authorities of the Coast Guard, okay, and Internet relief is authorized, but no other um, entity or, or uh, any other agency um, is within their jurisdiction. So that's what they're saying. They're saying we're doing this, okay, to document exposure in our Coast Guard cutters from 91 and back. And it includes a list. It doesn't necessarily mean a list of uh, all, but it includes a list of many Coast Guard cutters uh, that were uh, shown uh, to be amongst this class. And uh, it, it's uh, four, five, six, seven pages of Coast Guard cuts. So uh, I think it's important knowledge to have. I think, uh, you know, if, if VA was uh, interested, uh, I think it would be a good idea for them to actually uh, take this letter into consideration and, and publish it and uh, maybe amend the manual to include it. But, you know, I don't work there anymore. <laughs> hey, Bill, years ago, years ago, I was talking mm -hmm. to, not that many years ago, two, three years, the chief of the uh, logistics for the Pentagon, you know, and he was saying that there's all these contracts that come in, like for Hummer tires, for example, and they all come into the DOD contracting center. And, you know, there's Hummer tires for Navy that needs them in one week, and there's Hummer tires for the Army that needs, needs them in a month, and there's Hummer tires that need to transport around the world. And there's all these contracts, and they all kind of, often boil down into a, a single source, you know. But I was thinking that might be the same deal with the paint, and this back to that paint thing, that paint that the Coast Guard ordered through the DOD logistics system might be the same paint that the Navy, Marines, and everybody else used on their oh, ships, yeah. you know. Yeah. Might be able to search, the Navy ships use, those, um, do Navy ships use that lead ballast? I don't know. I'm not a Navy guy, but, but the yeah, paint might be the same. That, that yeah. might be a way to track it. You know, I mean, if we yeah. found the contracting yeah. sources, it might have been the actually, same supplier. 
actually the main the main content of lead aboard any navy ship. Coast Guard's same. They use a uh, every metal exposed metal surface that they use for flooring and walkways. Every one of those flooring and walkways were actually brushed and painted with uh, paint called red lead, which is a lead-based red paint. And there we go. Uh, it's uh, yep. it's all over the place. You find that wow. find that contract for lead for the red lead paint, and see if it was generalized throughout the military, which it probably was. And bingo. It is. I've got I've got the MSD up on somewhere. I can send you a copy of that. Until Safe Data shows a lot of stuff. That might be something worthwhile to share with uh, Congress and the VA and say you need to change your rules. Let's make it a little easier and adjudicate these claims a little quicker rather than in each and every case going back and researching. Well, was this ship potentially? Mm-hmm. Well, as far as lead, lead is such a toxic thing, too, you know. It causes so much problem yeah. that, you know, it's really unfair to the soldiers to be exposed and not be Benefited. Right. No. Yeah. As far as yeah. the best exposure, where you talk about Coast Guard ships, they tried to stop uh, production in the 80s on Navy ships that had asbestos. Unfortunately, I was one of the unlucky suckers that uh, was forced to go to the <laughs> asbestos ripout school, and I got put in the asbestos program. And uh, uh, Man, I think I've helped assisted. Yeah, I removed tons and tons of asbestos from submarines and ships. Huh. And, uh, so your exposure would be fairly easy to, to prove that. Oh yeah, uh, I filed a claim with the VA. I wanted the VA to give me, you know, to continue the program to give me X-rays every so many years, you know, for, for you know for the exposure. And uh, of course, they misappropriated the claim. They conceded my asbestos and said, but you don't have any asbestos or, or, or asbestos cases. We can't, you know, we can't pay your disability for it. I said, I'm not asking for that. I'm just asking for treatment for X-rays. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, you had a respirator. You had a respirator on too, right? Jay, a filter. Uh, we had respirators on when we were, when we were doing extra ripping. Uh, we have a lot of issues to where anytime you're in a shipyard or construction zone on board a ship, there's a lot of people. When they, if they take out a big piece of equipment like a SFTG or something huge, if they they'll cut a hole in the side of the ship and take it out, and put new stuff in. Well, during that process, especially in that engine compartment, some things start swinging wildly and they start chunking those big steam pipes. And once mm-hmm. them, you know, once they chunk that steam pipe, and that amosite gets airborne. It's 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 too late. Yeah. You know, so I, I know I was in the reserves, and I walked on board a cruiser in Philadelphia in the shipyard. I walked in there and I saw the mess down there, and I went to the XO of the boats to get everybody out of there, and I asked them to call over to the Environmental Preventive Medicine in Philadelphia, and they come over and started monitoring the air. And they would let nobody go in there. They had to send civilians there to, 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 to patch everything up for the Limbus. They shut them down for about two weeks. Huh. Yep, so it's bad stuff. It'll kill you. Right. And there's right. four, there's five of them that work with me. And those are dead now, so. <clears throat> wow. That's a true story. Wow. You know, but uh, it's a dangerous job. You don't have a choice, so well, my problem is that, that asbestos will do more than just your lungs won't get in your throat, your stomach and everywhere throat, else. Stomach. Yep. Yeah, it's like they're like little yeah. tiny microscopic javelins, you know, and they just start yeah. to migrate above above and below the <laughs> diaphragm. They can go 
you know, quite a distance yeah. bladder cancer and bowel. Yeah. yeah, it it affects a lot more than lungs and and I I believe people forget about that when they get some of these diagnoses that it could be as a result of uh of exposure to asbestos. Uh, you know, cancers. Yeah, that's where autopsy comes in and microscopic evaluation because you can see the fibers, you know. I've had some yeah. cases where we found things, bladder and kidney cancer and asbestos fibers in there, you know, it's kind of a smoking gun. Let me tell you a whole I remember one case uh, that you and I conferred on many, many years ago. <laughs> I was amazed. <laughs> Let me tell you a whole tell us, Bill, how, uh, yeah, yeah, I was in nineteen eighty four in Southern California, I was at the time I was the only certified radiation worker, asbestos worker on the West Coast for the Navy. Some okay. engine decided he was going to he was getting his qualifications on board a five uh, I guess it was a five ninety four class submarine. He was turning valves and having all kinds of good stuff. You know, having a fun time, you know, learning the qualifications. Idiot turned the wrong valve, flooded the lower level of the reactor compartment in saltwater. Oh. And here I am all by myself. <laughs> so <laughs> imagine having to suit up and go inside a reactor compartment and rip out asbestos, go back out, do it again. And we finally got the shipyard to come in and finish it. <laughs> That's double jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. Radiation, asbestos. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe you got vaccinated. <laughs> No, I got to radiate it. I guarantee you that. Of course, they, you know, it's different in that situation work from because they hang up shielding everywhere. It's kind of like, you know, they, you know, you only got areas you can work in. That's just, you know, if it's hot, you can't, you know, it, it, it's dangerous. You fall through the curtain, you're dead. Hey, Bill, what was that What was that case you were talking about, Bill? Remember? Oh, yeah, you were looking at the imaging. And uh, you just... Glanced at it and he said, Oh, yeah, there's a special, there's a special. I went, Doc, <laughs> what do you see? <laughs> and the doc explained to me, Well, think about your favorite car. And you look down the side of the car, you know every little scratch that wasn't there before. <laughs> well, I've looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of these images, so stuff stands out. <laughs> Yep. Exactly right. Yeah, it becomes an image. It just becomes an image. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, that's a profession everybody has to look closely at. I mean, you know, two eyes like one set of eyes could be different than another set of eyes. So I was at yeah. I was at NIH lecture last week and they were doing some work on artificial intelligence to read X rays, right? And they had awesome. two set you know, two sets of chest X rays that came from two different hospitals. And they were doing some testing on the program, and the program said absolutely 95% accuracy that this is pneumonia on this series of chest X-rays, like 50 of them. And then the other set didn't have as much pneumonia. And so they have this little thing that can tell where the computer is looking on the film. It's called a heat heat map. And so the computer on the films where the chest X-ray was had pneumonia was looking at the marker in the right upper corner all the time. And so the computer made the analysis that the chest X-ray had pneumonia because it came from 
Hospital A, which is known to have like 95% of the cases with pneumonia. <laughs> so it's all based, it's all based on the marker. Yeah, okay. Huh. Huh. <clears throat> yeah, man. So artificial yeah. unintelligence. <laughs> My bride retired from the VA. She worked in X-rays. She worked, she did everything from special procedures to general X-rays. And a bunch of students in there one day and they get to her uh, residence med students were in one of the rooms and they were looking at X-rays. And they were scratching her heads on one issue. So she saw what they were doing. And she walked over and she took the X-ray and flipped it over and put it back up there. <laughs> they started looking at the right way. <laughs> Common sense. <laughs> Common sense. Hmm. Yeah. Remember, remember, Doc, we won that MS case. You know, basically, Common Sense. You were doing battle with the dean of neurology of a major university out west and he wanted to disagree with you that the symptoms documented in the service record were or were not signs of MS and uh, it was was so simple to torpedo that expert because he made this sort of general statement that these variations in hearing capability um, can be associated with head colds, you know, and sinus congestion and the like. But what he didn't realize was during those periods of time when the guy was treated for that stuff, his hearing was fine. It was during the periods of time when it wasn't there that his hearing went screwy. <laughs> <laughs> and then got better. <laughs> so, so no, it wasn't. It's clearly not infection because those infections were at times that were different from those exacerbations of hearing loss, and the, the exacerbations themselves were pretty weird. Um, you know, it's kind of like playing a piano where these where these losses are traveling up and down in different frequencies at different times. <laughs> and sometimes they're all better, sometimes they're all worse, and sometimes they're less, and sometimes they're right. No, no, no. <laughs> That's not infection. That's MS. Uh, well, Bill, we want... Bill, brings up a, yeah, Bill brings up a good point about the record. You know, the, these cases can hinge on one word in the medical record. You know, one diagnosis or one misdiagnosis can change the whole course of the case. So that, that record review oh. and knowing what to look for, knowing what to look for in the record is just you know, like like the car example, knowing what to look for is an important part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens whenever a a raider disagrees with a CMP examiner? The CMP examiner the, says one thing, the raider says, "No, you're wrong," uh, and. Uh, uh, all right, all right. What, let, me, let me say what it this happens way. in a case like that? I mean, the okay. Raiders, the not Raider, a medical personnel took the words right out of my mouth. Took the words right out of my mouth. The Raider is not a doctor, okay? And and those of us with a boatload of experience, even, are not considered to be a medical expert. So the doctor prevails. The raider yeah. is not permitted 
to enter a decision contrary to the doctor's opinion unless the rater can point to other evidence of equal or greater value. So, uh, for example, if the rater sees the doctor say, this is not related to service, and the doctor has used something that the rater thinks is faulty reasoning or misinterpretation of evidence or something that's just inexplicable, the rater then may defer a decision and send it back to the doctor for a clarification. And the rater can express to the doctor his concerns and see what the doctor has to say about it. Now, well, what what if the doctor sends it back and say, this is my decision, I'm sticking with it? Yeah, you know, and I've seen it. Doctor said, hey, I'm the doctor, you aren't, I'm right, you're wrong, go away. <laughs> yeah. so I'm no, and it comes back and I still don't have the answer to my question, okay? <laughs> okay. Um, hey, Bill, hey, Bill how, do they, yeah. how do they weigh the, you want to describe how they weigh medical opinions, some of the parameters and maybe a couple examples or something. Well, okay, yeah, and the manual, the manual gives some descriptions of that too. Um, some of the factors for consideration include the, the level of expertise and the experience of the expert authoring the opinion. That's a relevant consideration. Another one is the uh, accuracy of their review of the evidence. Um, if the doctor is pointing to something that is just dispositive on, on the case, um, well, that's pretty much a slam dunk, but if the doctor is missing some things that appear to be significant and relevant and, and doesn't address it, well, that's, then that opinion isn't well supported. Um, if it, you know, Sometimes we'll see medical opinions when the doctor doesn't review any records. Well, that's, that's probably not too valuable. <laughs> okay. um, sometimes um, what, what I've seen and what I've still seen in, in more recent history are medical opinions that are predicated on a lack of treatment or documentation in treatment records. And, and that's not the relevant question, you know, because it's not a question of uh, treatment. It's a question of symptoms and manifestations. And a veteran can tell you what his symptoms were and what they've been for the last 20 years, and that's relevant evidence. In fact, I actually came across something. I, let me see if I can pull it up again. Um, I came across this in the manual just recently. Oh, oh, here it is. Um, or is uh, anyhow, in in the manual. They now have a specific instruction that says the absence of treatment records not always establish the absence of a disability. Okay? So well, that, that's, that's, uh, that's good news. Oh, here it is. I found it. All right. Now, what they've done, for whatever reason I don't understand, 
but they put this in a, in a section that discusses the presumption of aggravation under combat conditions. Okay? And in there, they say, important in both, do not merely dismiss the presence of a disability because there is an absence of accompanying medical treatment records. The absence of treatment records does not necessarily mean the absence of a disability. Moreover, the absence of medical records during combat conditions does not necessarily establish the absence of a disability. Now, hey, what location, they're what citing is that? That would be an M21-1, part four, II-B-4-M. And it's oh, under the man. section of adjudicating claims for aggravation in combat. And there's, in this section, only, they're referring... Hmm? Does that only refer to combat veterans? Yes, because the principle that they're expressing here was decided by a case called Maxim in the Federal Circuit. Yeah. Um, now, I haven't done my homework on this, but I recall Maxim. But the, the, the issue that was definitively held in Maxim was that um, the, the presumption of aggravation during combat um, and the question can be um, based on a consideration of the veteran's entire medical history to include any lengthy period without medical complaints during and after service. So you got a career soldier. He goes into combat. He comes back, and he serves another five years. And then he retires. And then he files a VA claim. And he's claiming that this was aggravated in combat. Well, okay, maybe it was, but, you know, the presumption that it was um, is somewhat rebuttable because you went for such a long time thereafter without ever complaining about it. You know, so that's, it's a relevant, it's a relevant consideration. They're not saying which way to decide it. Um, and personally, when I made decisions and I was making arguments for veterans as a rep, um, I considered and gave full credence to credible lay statements describing a history of symptoms. Um, I often found that because I was dealing with so many MS cases, multiple sclerosis, MS presents frequently in, in patients with very fleeting symptoms. They'll, and they'll go away. And they may or may not be um, severe. So a patient might experience one day a sudden onset of a numb left foot. Um, and it's aggravating to him, but, you know, he doesn't complain about it. He goes, he goes to work and everything else, and then it gets better. So he just, oh, hell with it. And then 
he doesn't realize until somebody with medical knowledge points out that, hey, that's consistent with the presentation of MS unless there's something else to explain it. Okay? Now, one episode may or may not be persuasive, but if he has this lay history and he is now recalling he had a symptom affecting a hand in one year. A year later, he had a symptom affecting a foot. Another time, he had a blurry vision erupt in an eye, and then it cleared up. Now you have a pattern of symptoms, and that contributes to the effort of determining when the disease process began presenting symptoms. Hey, Bill, Bill, on, M- on MRI, oftentimes you know, I look at those, the MS lesion will be like a halo, and the new information will start in different aspects of the halo. So even the person mm-hmm. might have a hand symptom this month, and then it goes away for a year, and then the hand symptom comes back again in a different part of the hand, so it can be even in the same part of the body, uh, repetitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or yeah, a different part or the same. That can come up too. Yeah, yeah absolutely, and seen plenty of cases like that. And that, that is that is we've had so much success because um, you take and you look at these symptoms and with with knowledge of presentations, potential presentations of MS, and the absence of any other particular disease or injury to explain the symptoms, it helps in establishing the diagnosis and establishing when it had its onset. Um, yeah, hey, we, Billy, want to explain that, that seven-year rule that you're on MS? Sure, sure. Um, this, the, uh, the rules, the law provides that if man, if MS presents within seven years of your last period of active duty, that it's presumed to be service-connected. So it's a seven-year window. Um, now, I've, I've helped correct mistakes by raiders who have said service connection for MS is denied because it was not diagnosed within seven years of service. Wrong question. Wrong answer. It doesn't matter when it's diagnosed. It's when it's presented. When does it become symptomatic? Okay. That determines whether or not presumptive service connection applies. Now, with MS, so, the minimum rating is 30%. Okay, so for presumptive service connection, your, your claim disability has to manifest to a compensable degree in order to be granted presumptive service connection. But the minimum rating for MS is 30%. Any manifestation of MS gets you no less than a 30% evaluation, so you satisfy the requirement of presenting a compensable disability. So, Bill, we have people um, with symptoms in seven years, and then the MS goes quiet mm-hmm. for a decade, and they get diagnosed like yeah. 17 years after service. In that case, sure. they get granted all the way back. Well, if they, if they, no, no, because you have to have the diagnosis, okay? So if you filed the claim and you were denied uh, for some reason, I'm not sure why, um, and later, decades later, you come up with a uh, presentation of symptoms and a diagnosis of MS, 
And now you get opinions say, hey, this MS manifested within seven years. Now that's new evidence. So you have new material evidence. Excuse me, that's an old term. New and relevant evidence is the new term that might lead to a grant. You reopen the claim. So that's, that's new evidence, new relevant evidence, and you reopen the claim. And the effective date is as of when you open up. Now, but what I was trying to say is I re- symptoms were prior. Yeah. 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 Right, Bill. You have to have both the symptoms and a claim. Okay. <laughs> and you have to have a diagnosis. And at the time of the original claim, you have to have a diagnosis. It has to be diagnosed then. If it wasn't diagnosed then, um, you made a claim and you were denied because you don't have a diagnosis, uh, then you lose. But uh, sometimes, um, and, I'm, and I'll tell you, I have been responsible for having Raiders reverse denials and for having reverse denials myself because it used that boilerplate language. You're denied because MS was not diagnosed within seven years of service. And I said, that's wrong. Clear and unmistakable error because you used the wrong law. There was a diagnosis, okay? Um, it wasn't made in the seven-year period, but you applied the wrong test because it doesn't have to be. Ergo, you were wrong. Symptoms were manifest within seven years. CUE, and it goes back to when it was denied first time. Yeah. Take your doctor knows what them. they're doing. They would say that. Sometimes you use the MRI too. Like these lesions come and go to certain frequencies. So if I see a bunch of lesions, I can roll the diagnosis back a while because it, the lesions don't just occur instantaneously. You know. So the imaging can have an important part in the in, the, in this whole pr- process. Yeah. Hmm. Eight o'clock already. <laughs> Are we still on the air? Yeah. 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 More time, guys. Go keep on going. Oh. <laughs> so Doctor ba- Dr. Bash, just Google, just Google on Craig Bash. You'll find me. Find my little YouTube stuff. Or call skip nine two five three eight one seven five six one for a phone nine two five three eight one seven five six one and Bill consults with me so we can get both of us. Yeah, Doctor Basher put uh, call on me on the cases where he thinks that can be used. Well, that sounds good. That was a good show. Um, we did well. Yeah, we got a lot of information out there, that's for sure. And I'm I'm certain that the uh uh Coast Guard uh people out there uh, uh listening or or someone that knows anyone that was in the Coast Guard be be sure to to let them know that uh uh you know, if they end up with some medical issues, they could be pinned down to exposure to lead or red lead or uh, asbestos. Uh, be sure to let them know that uh, uh, there's there's a way for them to get themselves taken care of. Mm-hmm. 
That's true, Joe. Exactly. Let me give a passing point out before we close the show. Uh, people that are doing claims and adjudicating claims and filing claims, if you're you claim a condition or you claim something that you were exposed to in the job to get away during service, especially when in the Navy, it's always good for the first thing to pull out of the record. Is not your medical record, but the most important thing is to find that exactly what you did in service. And people, you know, after time, you, you know, your memory fades a lot. So if you go through your record, you fill out each one of your enlisted performance evaluations or service evaluations. Look on the back page of that evaluation. Each one of them gives a detailed list of what you did while you were in service assigned to certain jobs. So that makes it a lot easier for people to find out what they did and what they were exposed to. Hey, Bill, the radar, the radar looks at that, too, right? Because if the job is consistent with the exposure or the risk, mm-hmm. then that helps consistency. Right, Bill? That's right. Um, yeah. the, the statutory language is consistent with circumstance, place, and type mm-hmm. of service. Right. And so if what you say is consistent with uh, history shown in your duty assignment, uh, right. that supports your claim. Um, Especially asbestos claims, stuff like that. Asbestos, they removed asbestos, and you can look in the back of that sheet, and you can, you can, you can just about, you know, you can see in radiation claims the same way because it tells you where you did the work at. So, right, right, it's pretty, a lot of documentation yeah. on that. Um, That's a smoke. I feel for those guys. Uh, I feel for those guys uh, back a long time ago with the early radiation experiments, who mm-hmm. whose documentation wasn't made really clearly. And a lot of experiments. Well, uh, yeah. A long time ago. Was it Operation? Was it Operation Crossroads? They dropped that. Uh, they dropped the air nuke, and then they let the guys go well, back. Crossroads. After a couple of days. <laughs> Crossroads was actually um, tested in the in the uh, islands in the Pacific. Um, and, you know, so trading blowing, blowing up ships in the lagoon and stuff. Um, yeah, that was in Bikini Atoll. It was Bikini as an area. Yeah. Yeah, the Pena yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was able. And that was a series, a series uh, yeah, a series of explosions. I saw a, uh, yeah. and I also saw a report from the uh, General Accounting Office some years back that said the dosimetry on that on the cruise was uh, grossly under uh, uh, underestimated. That uh, yep. if if your uh, dosimetry record showed exposure to one rem, it was more likely five. And uh, there's a lot yeah, of problems with dosimetry. I've looked at some of those badges, you know, and it's supposed to be a cumulative dose, oh, yeah. and sometimes the dose gets smaller and higher in the cumulative column. That doesn't work like that, you know. Cumulative dose is a cumulative dose. Back, back to the concussion TBI <clears throat> stuff, you know. I always ask my patients where they worked, and I had a guy that had TBI. I said, Where'd you, did you have any TBI? No, I never had TBI. Where'd you work? I sat under the front gun of some Navy ship and had thousands and thousands of rounds go off. And I said, you know, it's probably, probably TBI, pugilistica. But oh. the, the, where, where people work is a big deal. And they don't understand that's way what the exposures are, you know. No. Concussion okay. TBI. Yep. Concussion little, TBI. Little, little blast, little blast, blast, blast. Yep. I couldn't Just imagine like, you know, standing around one of them big guns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I got a guy. I a couple fellas that, uh, 
Yeah, I know a couple of fellows with uh, hearing losses and tonight associated with those big guns. Mm. TBS, TBS oh, I remember. Oh, God, I hate to digress, but I remember this one case. It's just as silly as can be. The guy is um, receiving compensation for his hearing loss and his tinnitus based on documentation showing that he was near a big gun when it went off when his ship was exchanging gunfire with an enemy battery in Vietnam. Okay, so the Vietnamese were shooting at them and they were shooting back and this guy his service connected for his hearing loss and tinnitus incurred in combat. Okay. They denied his PTSD Accents of stress. Come on. My decision was here's your check. <laughs> so low ball, low ball check. Uh, reading. Yeah, low hanging fruit there. Kind of reminds me of a fellow got service next for exposure to mustard gas on his ears and got turned down the rest of the exposures. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is what it is, people. And we just keep we just keep focusing on the truth, getting the documents we can, putting together the case as tight as we can make it. Who was it? Dorothy Hamill used to say, "If you're good enough, they got to give it to you." Eventually. <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, right there. You get asked a lot of questions. You get asked a lot of questions along the way because those fifteen-minute medical visits or those, you know, top top sheeting records doesn't really get the data we need, right, Bill? Got to dig in and find the details. That's right. Details, details, details. I, when I was uh, working for the Maryland Veterans Commission, I was a Supervisor of appeals to the state of Maryland, and uh, I made up a little survey, uh, kind of a, a little check-in and check-out sheet. And I told all my veterans when they go down to the clinic for their exam, you got to stop in my office first. And I'd give them that sheet, and I said, "Now you're going to take this down with you, and you're going to take it with you into the exam room with the doctor, with the examiner." You're going to sit down at his desk, you're going to pull out your pen, and you're going to write down the time right on the top of it, okay? And you're going to do the same thing when you check out. When the doctor dismisses you, you're going to write down the time, and you're going to bring that back to me when the exam's over with. (laughs) And then if the doctor asks you what you're doing, you say... I don't know. Uh, you know, the, the, the guy there in the state of Maryland told me to, to, to bring this back to him when it's over. <laughs> Guess what? The exam time started increasing dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> well, it should. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mess now. I mean, you go to the VA, the VA doctor now, and they go to your appointment. So the VA doctor's in front of the computer typing up. He might look at you for about 10 seconds during a 15-minute meeting. 
Yeah. And so it's, you know, they've taken away their health and everything else. The doctors are one-man gangs. I even had a doctor the other day. The doctor was going out into to, to the uh, weight room getting patients and taking them back. Of course, now, you know, yeah. while we're on the topic, you know, i got to say, mm-hmm. you know, I had my last CP exam. Um, I was very impressed. Mm-hmm. He had read the record before I came in. He fully discussed everything with me and all the possibilities and variables and, you know, conducted the range of motion. Not a little off on that, but, hey, it doesn't make any difference. It's a shoulder. You know? yeah. <laughs> the only rating you can get. I know. <laughs> so, so um, you know, I was very impressed. How much, and I was great how much range of motion? How, how much range did you lose, Bill, after you had your surgery? Did you lose a lot? Uh, we were talking, uh, the exam was before the surgery. Yeah, okay. And the exam was before the surgery, and and uh, I could forward flex to maybe 80 degrees. Um, right. I guess that far, it just hurt too much. Wouldn't do it. Yeah, I know. I know exactly what I'm going and, uh, through it right now myself, so it's bad. Yeah, so... He recorded it 110 degrees. <laughs> really? And I, I don't know how I got that. And I don't care. <laughs> you know, I got it 20 percent anyway. <laughs> uh, I think Bill Cleaver going to the CMP exam be like Babe Ruth walked into a baseball clinic. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. <laughs> they, they they had an empty seat in this one training event uh, one time when I, when I'm VA employee, and they had this one seat empty, and they needed to fill it. You know, so they said, "Bill, you go." <laughs> okay, sure, I don't mind. <laughs> they got to uh, they got to the section there. Now they're going to teach the raiders how to rate muscles. Okay. And the poor fellow they had doing that, um, he was just giving it as a as a thank you for, you know, a chance to, to travel a little bit and have some meals on the government and see some, you know, see some uh, local geography and culture and stuff, you know. So it was like a vacation for him, you know. He was so lost. And, you know, I'm very politely and gently trying to help the poor guy. And it didn't take long. He said, Bill, would, would you come up here and, and finish this? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I've done this a hundred times. <laughs> Been there, done that. Uh, yeah, so much. Uh, yeah, I've run into that a bit. Yeah, because I take the time to read and learn, Okay. And you can't do that when you're on a quota. Um, so, you know, I had a big advantage when I went to work for VA because I had already studied so much and made a point of learning so much compared to the classmates who, you know, are being introduced to this. <laughs> so I was able to maintain, you know, being one of the most productive raiders on the office and and uh, still have time to uh, write up uh, lengthy and, and comprehensive decisions. Yeah, the folks over in the quality review staff are saying, Bill, you're, you're just writing too much. 
says, you know, the veteran isn't going to understand all that. And I says, I'm not writing to the veteran. I'm writing to you. You're <laughs> the quality review. <laughs> uh, now, hopefully you'll learn something. <laughs> I think the VA needs more quality review personnel myself. Well, now they've actually, they've actually dumbed it down. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the process changed, you know, from trying to understand the law and the medicine involved uh, mm-hmm. to uh, transfer the data off the exam into the computer, and the computer tells you what to do. Yep. And you're and you're required to use the computer to do it. <clears throat> and, and like I was talking with Gerald er- earlier today. Um, you know, let's say you've got a case where you're evaluating somebody's PTSD. Mm-hmm. So the VA examiner checks certain boxes on the DVQ and says, okay, there's depression, there's, you know, uh, sleep disturbance, uh, there's alteration of mood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, okay, and then the doctor also says, well, there's nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive recollections, psychophysiological reactions, uh, uh, triggered by um, events that remind them of the event. Okay, so there's a whole set of other symptoms that are typical for PTSD that are not in the rating schedule. Okay? So if you transfer the data over, let's say the computer tells you it's 50%, you're required to assign 50% unless you choose to click it one up to 70 or one down to 30. You have that option, but you're also instructed that every time you do it, it's going to be reviewed by central office. And nobody wants their work reviewed by central office because they're going to go through that file end-to-end and try to find something they can nail you with. (laughs) So nobody wants their work in central office because nobody wants it reviewed because central office is going to come back and find something wrong with it. And, you know, when when you're doing four cases a day, you probably type something wrong in every last one of them. So um, nobody clicks up. You know, they just do what the computer tells them to do. Well, I made a point of clicking up frequently, particularly in PTSD cases. And I, I cite to Mauerham, where the court says, you have to consider all the symptoms, not just the ones listed in the rating schedule. And so I say, with consideration of those other symptoms from PTSD, this really picture more nearly approximates 70%. Never once was ever count, not once. Nobody ever asked me to reduce that rate. And so I either they didn't review it, <laughs> which is a possibility, <laughs> or um, they understood it and agreed with it. So I wish so Bill, other people idea, had the uh, courage to do it. This idea of migrating towards the mean, you know, getting rid of the outliers is a big problem throughout all of medicine because of the electronic records, you know. So in the clinics, there's not range or places for the gray zones to be described, and so it messes with the diagnosis, and doctors are getting called in, like, from malpractice, and they say, well, I was thinking this, but they say your electronic record said you thought that. And so it really causes a lot of problems throughout the whole system because it's it's cookie-cuttering the whole thought process into little squares and boxes. Yeah, yeah, it's a similar trend, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Well, don't that... Uh, you know, this 
this digital stuff is still relatively new, and it depends on the programmer who, who in the world wrote up these programs until they get that correct. I think you're going to see problems here and there, and probably more often than not. Uh, George, George, you're right about that. Yeah, It depends on the audience, yeah. Gerald. You're right. So, like the electronic medical record in the hospital is all written so that the insurance companies could do billing, and the DQs yes. are all written so that the so that the VA can do ratings. And so it depends on the audience who paid for the programs. They're going to get what they want out of them, and the rest of the stuff is going to go by the wayside. You're right. Yeah, I agree. I I think that's uh, and that's going to be problematic till they get the the bugs all worked out of it, and and no telling how long that's going to take because especially yeah. the VA, I don't see any reason for them to want everything to be a notch higher. Well, the uh, the the DBU process. Yeah, the insurance it's like insurance companies in a way, yeah. And the so DBQ what? process is a work in process. And there's there's a continual process of reviewing them and amending them to uh try to adapt to the needs of the adjudicators, the readers, so that they can uh make it easier for the readers. By saying, "Okay, this is this is what the this is what's happening," you know, so. but, uh, I was one of those. Uh, I was one of what what the central office used to call crusty old grows. <laughs> crusty, there you go, crusty crab, crusty old grow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My biggest yeah, fear with that system is once the once the computer starts doing all this work. All the rating stuff are computerized. Is is the are, is the uh, VBA going to start uh, putting raters out the door and hiring the GS6s to run the computers to save money? Uh, actually, <laughs> actually, what VA did while I was there uh, was to reduce the grade. <clears throat> we were hiring raters at nine as opposed yep. to twelve. <laughs> yeah. I figured that was coming. I figured that was coming. Automation. I figured that was coming. That and the other thing with the national work queue, because everything's electronic, um, Mm -hmm. all the records are electronic, where the employee is physically sitting is not relevant. Okay? So the first phase that I noticed was that they increased staffing in low-cost areas. Like, for example, um, West Virginia, okay? Mm-hmm. They can hire people for a much lower salary in that area than mm-hmm. in uh, another part of the country, like New York or something. Okay? You took about Huntington, so right? They, yeah, yeah. And so they yeah. increased staffing in those locations. Um, Huntington, used to, Huntington used to be a sister, our little Louisville, and they were seen the work back and forth back in the old days. I don't know how they do it now. Well, now there's a one great big, what they call national work queue, and yeah. uh, they're centralized intake. So claims received go to the intake centers, scanned and uploaded um, into the national work queue, the national record. 
Then they're assigned. Um, and it used to be they'd have to pack up a ton of boxes of paper plane files and ship them all over the country. And if one one office is overwhelmed and one office has a little more capacity, they'll ship a few thousand across the state line, across the country, have them work, um, be ready to be implemented, and then they'd go back to the office they came from, put them on their local letterhead. So you mm-hmm. think it was done for local office. Now, no, it's, it's, they're just assigned electronically, so they don't have to ship all that paper around, which is a good thing. They save taxpayer a lot of dollars. That saves um, a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. Uh, but you know, you know, you know, and and I might have mentioned before that you know there used to be a great inconsistency across the country. There are geographic inconsistencies in rating outcomes. General Accounting Office came up with a study, and they showed that the Rust Belt, you know, like from from uh, maybe like. Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Newark, New Jersey, that belt through there. If if you have your claim adjudicated in that area at that time, um, you are more often denied than elsewhere in the country. Um, and if you were granted, you were more often granted less. And so why that particular part of the country came up to be more stingy than the rest of the country, well, I out that we'll ever know, other than all training was local, and I guess it was just, you know, it was, uh, the old guys taught the young guys what they, the way they did things, and they just, in that part of the country, just did them a little more stingy. But, yeah, they probably sent them to Waco to be trained. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, what VA solution was, okay, well, we're, we're going to forbid local training, all the training is going to be coming from the central office and done electronically. Um, sometimes they would send out a PowerPoint and a local person would be selected to present the PowerPoint, but they're not allowed to go off the script and they're not allowed to answer questions. You know, if they get a question and they say, well, we'll get back to you. And they're supposedly then sending the question up to the central office for the answer and wait for a response. But time and time and time again, I saw that process and, you know, you go a year and never hear a thing. You know? So you, you just have to move on, you know? Um, so the with the, the centralizing of training, um, with the automation of the rating process, uh, with the requirement to comply with the use of the computer, the consistency across the country has become greater. So this geographic disparity declined over time. And the speed of adjudications has increased over time, which are both good things. Um, yes. Unfortunately, in those things, it requires hey, Bill, judgment Bill, about weighing Bill, evidence. Hey, yeah? hey, Bill, consistency doesn't mean accuracy, you know. No, no, uh-uh, no. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't. Right. Doesn't mean accuracy. It just means everybody's doing it the same way. So if central office puts out a directive that's incorrect, it's going to hurt veterans all over the country. But at least it'll be all over the country the same. <laughs> at least it'll be consistent. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I ran into that with a with an effective date issue. They came out with a bulletin uh, describing how to evaluate a disability over time in some field, and they gave an example of a shoulder. 
and this this is before the minimum rating for a shoulder was clearly established as twenty percent. But back at the time, uh, they gave an example. Fellow gets a rating for a shoulder, and based on the evidence in the exam at the time, it's a ten percent shoulder. He disagrees. He gets a new exam. The second exam shows a twenty percent shoulder, and their instruction was assign ten percent from the initial claim and twenty percent from the exam showing the twenty percent. Based on the data, I actually wrote a, or is it I I actually wrote a memo to central office and sent it up through channels to explain to them that what you just said is in direct contradiction to general counsel Preston's opinion. Well, that's 98. <laughs> and they, it took them about four months, I guess. And I'm, I won't claim that they did it because of me. I mean, there might've been other people bringing up the same um, issue with their instruction, but some months later, they rescinded the bulletin and said, follow the general counsel opinion, you know, and, and, and general counsel opinion basically said, you got to look at all the evidence, you know, and you got to, you got to look at all the evidence, including the lay evidence and say, okay, when did it become 20% disabling, you know, and, and based on the evidence of sure. find the effective date and as best you can find out when it became 20% disabling yeah. and, Bill speaking from now on, um, the day of the exam usually does not represent the day it got worse unless the patient comes in that morning to the exam and says, oh, it just got worse today. (laughs) No, generally speaking, it's worse, (laughs) and that's why he claimed the increase, okay? (laughs) The day condition arose. Yes, we are. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I mean, you guys, uh, you know, you, you guys have a big following and it grows and grows every time you come on. So we'll do this again soon. Well, thanks. Thanks. I, I hope we're helping. You're helping a lot. Of course. It's, uh, you know, you guys do a good job and that's, that's why we keep having you back, you know, because it makes kind of people like, where are they guys coming back on again? We got to have them, you know. Uh, but, <laughs> That's a good thing. Cars are free to call in, too, if they have specific questions or topics they want us to tackle, you know? Yep, they can do it. They will do it. Or they'll send me messages to ask questions. That's, that's what usually happens. <laughs> yeah, that's good, good. good. Uh, all right. But I think you guys are coming on. Gerald, thanks for coming on the calls, buddy. I appreciate it. Uh, we're going to take a couple of uh, – we're going to take a hiatus for the next couple of weeks. I'm not playing this show again next week because of Thanksgiving special because it's a good show. And uh, we'll try to resume okay. maybe after. I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a bad surgery here coming up in a couple of weeks. I don't know how long I'll be out. But uh, we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get something done regardless. If I, if I come on a little bit groggy, you guys know why. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, medication feels so good. <laughs> yeah, 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 it does. It's kind of like the club at the Marine Ball. It's called the Staggering Swagger. You walk in with a stagger and out the door, or a swagger and out with a stagger. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, folks, this is Jay Basher. Thanks for listening to the show, and we'll see you again next week.
you have been listening to the Basser Hour. The Basser Hour is brought to you by Hadit.com. Stay tuned next week for another edition of the Basser Hour and the Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio Show. Thanks for listening.